Psalm 73 is our psalm for today. Welcome in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for gathering us this Lord's Day. Thank you for the worship we've had or the worship we're going into. We ask now for wisdom as we understand through the power of your Holy Spirit, your Holy Word in Psalm 73. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray together. Amen. Psalm 73 is an angst psalm, and I haven't done an angst psalm with you. I did Psalm 1 and Psalm 8, beautiful, powerful psalms that set something of the tenor of the Psalter, Jesus' prayer book. And remember, I used an image that the psalms are a bit like the ocean, and some of you have spent time at the ocean this summer. You can be like a tourist getting a good landscape vision of the ocean, or you can be a surfer or a sailor or a scuba diver, and you can get into the ocean. And the analogy here is that we get into the Psalms. We begin to embrace them as our prayer book. So often we don't have the words to say, and we don't know how to articulate. And as soon as we start praying, we start daydreaming. Well, the Psalms are a good solution to that a solution provided, I think, by the Spirit of God. My particular concern with the Psalms this summer has been to see how they are echoed in the New Testament, how the apostles heard the Psalms and prayed the Psalms. And even when they're not quoted in the New Testament, you begin to see reflections of the Psalms uh, in, their, in their writing and in the New Testament. Now, I have to confess, I don't feel very angst this morning. Uh, Yesterday, my wife and I attended the memorial service for Uncle George Long, longtime pastor of Lookout Mountain uh, Presbyterian Church, and uh, a person that uh, really has... uh, He pastored there for 22 years, and now three pastors have followed him but he has been just as much, he and Catherine, in the life of the church. And yesterday's 90-minute memorial service was just a wonderful uh, celebration of his life. And I was thinking, well, maybe I should have picked Psalm 103 today because Psalm, you know, bless the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, bless his holy name. That would have been a psalm maybe more in tune with my emotions. But Psalm 73 is a necessary psalm. And so we will turn to that and... And maybe it'll actually be good that I'm not in the angst um, to pray this psalm. It's on your study sheet. It's in the left column. Uh, Sort of my headings uh, break down sort of our outline for this morning. But let's uh, read, pray the psalm to begin with. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff. They speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. 
Their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them, and they drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High know anything? Well, this is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely, in vain, I have kept my heart pure. I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. And when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. And now the powerful conclusion of the psalm. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, now do you notice how in verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. And then this, the last verse, but as for me, it's good to me near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Now, that's why I call it an ark, ark of devotion. You begin at a certain place. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me. And then you track this angst through his understanding of the contrast between the way of worship and righteousness and the way of the wicked. And he comes to the point, his bottom, his miry bottom is, I have done all of this in vain. Why have I kept my heart in innocence? And then the ark hits the bottom there, and then it begins to move up when he says, if I had said this, I would have betrayed this generation of your children. But even that's not good enough to hold him. And then he says, until I entered your sanctuary, and then I understood. So it, it, you see the sort of the, the direction of the, of the psalm begins at a, a certain point and then moves to a bottom and then moves to the top. So he concludes, but as for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Now, who's Asaph? 
And there's probably a lot of debate as to how much, how much the superscription of the psalm ought to condition our understanding. I tend to put a lot of stock in it. It may not be inspired, but it certainly has had a long tradition of identifying the psalm. Asaph was the worship leader. Uh, He was like Fred or Zach to the congregation. Not just music, but worship. And Asaph was the worship leader and his sons during the time of David and Solomon. He was there when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Jerusalem with great fanfare, and we're told that Asaph played the cymbals. He was there at the dedication of the temple. He's credited with 12 psalms, Psalm 50 and then Psalm 73 to 83. These psalms kind of have a distinctive voice, a voice of angst. Most of them, he's upset. And you get this sense of struggling through to worship. And that's, I think, where the psalm begins. The psalm begins with kind of the the rote, the truism. It kind of rolls off Asaph's tongue. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He said it a thousand times. This is something that he can mouth without thinking. It can become a cliche. And if we've been in the church long enough, we know the danger of this. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, and you see the struggle in the worship leader. You and I, because we're not preaching or giving leadership on a Sunday morning up front, can just find ourselves showing up. And sometimes we think that that's pretty good just in itself. We've shown up. I find it very different when I come to worship to preach. My adrenaline, even my digestive system, has been aware for 48 hours that I'm going to be preaching. There's a sense in which it runs through my whole body, my whole psyche, my whole understanding is focused. This is Asaph. He's come to worship, but he really doesn't feel like it. And he needs recovery time from church time. I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of situation of needing recovery time from church time. Been to church, he has a responsibility to do, and he knows he's not going to feel good for about 48 hours because his soul is so upset. He's living into a contradiction, a contradiction of lifestyles, Mark Laberton, who's now the president of Fuller Theological Seminary in California, has written a book, The Dangerous Act of Worship. And he describes the dangerous act of worship in two ways. Negatively, it's dangerous when worship becomes about us, ourselves, our self-expression, our performance. That's dangerous. The dangerous 
act of worship positively is when it really is about coming into the presence of the triune God. When confession is real, when absolution and forgiveness is real, when there is a sense in which the word of God has this almost hammer-like quality or this very soothing, comforting-like quality that's real, that's the dangerous act of worship. And a really good worship leader and a really good worshiper cannot enter the sanctuary just blandly, complacently, casually, flippantly. This is where ASAP is struggling. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped because I envied the prosperity of the wicked. They don't have any troubles. So why am I doing what I am doing? When it's, and this is the classic question that is not far removed from other biblical passages. I mean, Job is dedicated to the whole thing to it. Habakkuk is another biblical book that struggles with this. Why is God so permissive of those who seem so contrary to his will? So I say here, Asaph is in ethical shock. He's in moral pain. Now, I'd suggest to you that at some point in the life of your relationship with Christ, this kind of moral pain and this kind of ethical shock is essential. I think at some point in your life, this is the kind of question that needs to be faced. I think good parents understand the ASAP dilemma and are able to kind of discuss it and work it in the home. I think that's a good sort of uh, preparation for children as they grow into maturity and see the conflict of hypocrisy, the difficulty of navigating that kind of apparent discrepancy. What Asaph is really troubled with is the beautiful side of evil. There are two sides to evil. There is a really ugly, repulsive, degenerative side to evil. We know that side of evil. For most of us, we do find it repulsive, and we really keep our distance from it, so much so that we need to be challenged to enter into that world for the sake of the gospel because people really are needy. But then there's another side of evil that sometimes is not understood as evil, and that's the beautiful side of evil. In Revelation 17 and 18, the Apostle John describes culture by looking at the great prostitute and the great city. And these two are interchangeable images for him. The great city equals the great prostitute. The great prostitute equals the great city. And he describes the beautiful side of evil. Evil is something very seductive and attractive and compelling. That image of success and power is something that is, has a, a kind of gravitas to it. It attracts us to it. This is the evil that is upsetting Asaph. 
the beautiful side of evil. Not the pimp, not the prostitute, not the drug addict, not the thug, not the... He's looking at the corner office people who could give a damn about God and yet are so wonderfully athletic, photogenic, and beautiful. That's what Asaph is struggling with. Now, even to make matters complicated, more complicated, I did say it was a psalm of angst, right? And I don't think I've probably done my job in this hour if you don't feel some kind of adrenaline. You're not looking like you got adrenaline, but... <laughs> One of the things that disturbs me most about the psalm is who Asaph may have been challenged by. Now, there's quite a transition that takes place between David and Solomon. David, although flawed in many significant ways, David kept the worship real. There is a palpable sense of the intensity of David's worship. And you can imagine what it was, would have been like to have been a worship leader with David. Can I keep up with the worshiper? You know, I mean... He, David made Asaph a better worship leader. Asaph made David a better worshiper. And there is a synergy there, obviously. But then Solomon comes along and is really taken with wealth. Imports 12,000 Arabian horses. Hammers out weaponry in solid gold. 50 shields of solid gold makes a big deal about his ivory throne overlaid with gold, has a thousand wives and concubines, builds new palaces for his wives because he doesn't want the wife going into David's palace. That's Asaph's worshiping community. So Asaph is trying to lead worship and in walks Solomon. And, you know, Asaph is a worship leader. He's not, he's not been called to be the prophet. So this, to me, describes something of the angst that Asaph is feeling. Now, we hit bottom when he says, Surely I have kept my heart pure. Verse 13, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and I've washed my hands in innocence all day long. I have been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishments. You know, isn't it interesting that when you do what's right, you can feel so guilty? I, I think that this is an interesting dynamic seldom talked about, is that when you're actually doing what God wants you to do, you can feel crummy. There was one point in my own ministry that I th began feeling guilty for what I was bringing my own family through. I felt it was God's will. My family felt it was God's will. They were completely supportive. I did not have any resistance from my family. 
but I felt guilty for what they were having to experience because of my call. Asaph is kind of at, in a more intense degree there. Now, if you turn the page, we begin to go up the curve. We've hit bottom, and now we're beginning to move up. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. Now, that line, we shouldn't skip over it very fast. What does it say? I think Asaph is saying that if, if I quit the faith, if I cash in, if I say that I'm no longer engaged in this way, I've made a mistake all along. I've made a mistake. This is not what I should be doing. He would have betrayed this generation of your children. Now, do you see the dynamic there that if you are close to sisters and brothers in Christ, if you are part of the family of God, if you are known by name, if you are prayed for, if you pray for others, if you worship together, not just streaming into an institution that knows how to do good worship and then streaming out, but you're known, you realize that you feel somewhat accountable to them? You feel somewhat responsible? Therefore, you have a line of defense. You have a line of defense before the infidelity is committed. You have a line of defense before the greed takes over. You have a line of defense before you do what you really in your heart know is wrong to do. You don't want to let your children down. You don't want to let your grandparents down. And that may be, that may be your first line of defense. Just, I don't want to let them down. And that's what Asaph is feeling. If I had said this, I would have betrayed this generation of your children. To me, that's a very powerful line, especially here in the West, where we're so individualistic. We're so alone. We're so autonomous. We're so independent. We've taken such pride in that, that sometimes we, we push back the kind of relationships that actually hold us closer to God. Even so, I guess you get that point, right? Even so, that's not strong enough. And Asaph acknowledges that. No matter how close the bonding, no matter how knit the relationships are together, it's just, that's not sufficient. And therefore, there's something more that Asaph describes here as holding him in faith. Verse 16 is the reason why it's not enough. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Asaph really believes and is affirmed, reaffirmed in his conviction that God indeed is sovereign. God is holy. God is just. God is loving. There is a moral universe. There is an accountability before God. That's what he's reminded of. 
There isn't just this flat land where you try to get by the best you can in a dog-eat-dog, in a -dog, rat-race world. There is dimensions to this world. There is structure. There is accountability. And God, indeed, will hold people accountable. There is a judgment. Not a lot of gospel here yet. But the gospel underlies all of this. He understands that what appears to be so wonderful, so beautiful, the beautiful side of evil, is like a fantasy. They'll wake up and it'll be gone. When my heart, verse 21, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Asaph never entered into the beautiful side of evil, so why now is he almost confessing? When my heart was grieved and my spirit was embittered, I was like a dumb ox. I was like a brute beast. It makes us think very much of Job's acknowledgement toward the end of his book when Job says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I don't think either Job or Asaph are incriminating themselves. But I think what they are saying here is, Okay, God, I get it. I do understand. I understand and acknowledge your holiness, your worthiness, and the redemptive aspects of living as you would have me live by your grace. I get that. I understand it, and I am sorry that I lost perspective. I'm sorry that that which is designed to seduce did seduce me. I didn't do it, but I certainly was confused and attracted by it. It had a powerful influence on me. I didn't go there. I didn't become malicious. I didn't walk over other people. I didn't take advantage of them. I didn't cash in my responsibility. I was senseless and I was ignorant. I was like a brute beast before you, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, nothing I desire besides you. And I don't think this is a spiritual elite person. I think this is, the, this is what the normal Christian life should be about. Understanding that in comparison to all that the world might give to us, what God gives to us is beyond compare. It's really what lasts. And I'd suggest you, yeah, I started at the beginning by talking about my Uncle George-in-law, um, who uh, was celebrated yesterday, and boy, his 95 years were blessed with this kind of passionate relationship with God in Christ, 
And it just doesn't compare to any kind of bottom line, any kind of material possession, any kind of portfolio, any kind of fame and reputation doesn't compare to what my Uncle George uh, experienced. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those, and then he returns to this theme of judgment, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, you see in the arc of devotion how this but as for me is so much more mature, so much stronger, so much more informed. I think that the, the arc is somewhat essential. That sort of U-curve, I think, is necessary for all of us to somehow experience and to go through. Isn't it interesting, Psalm 73 is kind of in the middle of the Psalter between Psalm 1 and Psalm 150. Psalm 1, simply talking about the blessing of the righteous. Psalm 150, flat out, hallelujah, praise, all out. And in the middle is this kind of wake-up call, this kind of challenge to maturity, this arc of devotion. And you can ask yourself now, where are you on the arc? Are you at that first verse? God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Great. Got it. Got it down. I know how to say it. It's true. But has it been challenged? Challenged in life and challenged in understanding, challenged so that the worship that you practice has become more real and more personal? What would constitute the sanctuary for us? Asaph says, till I entered the sanctuary of God, and then it became apparent. Then I began to understand. I think the sanctuary for us is the cross of Jesus Christ, is the understanding of what that atoning sacrifice means for us and how it has radically changed our life, that Christ has died that we might live. Craig's comment, the Lord can't do anything from Capon. The Lord can't do anything with your life, but he can do everything with your death because Christ is the God of life and death, life and resurrection. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, I won't give a fig for the simplicity on this side of complexity, but I will give my life for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. I think that quote works really well for Asaph. He's climbed down into the pit, and now he's risen up, and the Lord is the strength of his heart. He's at a real strong place when it comes to worship.